My name is Alison Shorten and I would like to welcome Professor Michael O'Hara who will be speaking with us today about his recent commentary on the issue of psychosocial and psychological interventions to reduce the risk of postnatal depression. Can you tell us a little bit about how important or extensive this problem of um, depression associated with pregnancy is in the U.S. and perhaps internationally? Well, I think the problem certainly is an international problem, certainly not just here in the U.S. And in fact, leadership historically has come from Europe and Australia in this area. And sometimes I think we in the U.S. lag behind a little bit. But there's been a broad recognition now for probably 40, 50 years that um, some subset of women during pregnancy and after delivery do experience emotional problems that are not transient um, and that have an impact on their lives. And when you put the symptoms that they report and the impairment that they experience together, it really shows a picture of a, a often of major depression. And we know that depression in the mother creates suffering, particularly at a time of, of real burden for her in managing a, a newborn or a child who's perhaps slightly older than that, and also other uh, children in the family. These depressions that do occur, and we're talking about a prevalence probably on the order, depending on the severity, somewhere between 7 and 20% of women will have an experience of a depressive episode that is maybe quite impairing, and it certainly has consequences for the um, uh, development of the child and um, can create problems in uh, family relationships as well. It certainly is a significant problem and it's something that's um, concerning worldwide, as you say. Do you think um, there are any particularly promising psychosocial and psychological interventions that are coming out? What do you think are the most promising um, interventions for reducing the risk of postnatal depression? When we talk about uh, prevention, I think it's important to um, distinguish between two types of prevention, including with postpartum or postnatal depression. One is sort of a universal prevention approach, which probably the best example in this context would be um, childbirth education that, that is formulated in a variety of ways of, uh, across the world. But there's pretty good evidence that uh, these programs um, lead to better outcomes for women and infants, and they're applied really to everybody. Um, a second approach is where you're targeting groups or women who are at high risk, and in the case of postnatal depression, this would be women who perhaps have um, already have some symptoms of depression during pregnancy or who have some, um, who have some ris other risk factors like uh, being uh, having very low levels of education, being in poverty, um, having had maybe a history of of uh, sexual abuse, uh, past history of major depression or bipolar disorder. There are a number of characteristics that would increase the risk for depression in these women. And so um, the interventions uh, that we uh, deliver on a preventive basis, sometimes are delivered to all women during pregnancy or whatever that large subset would be that are in a 
you know, kind of a medical care community or to women who are selected because of risk factors. And so probably the most promising interventions are ones that target high-risk women in particular, because these are the women who are more likely than the average woman to go on to have a, a major depression in the postpartum period. So examples of these would be often their scaled down or adaptations of current treatments. So the one that we work with quite a bit is called interpersonal psychotherapy. What we demonstrated was that this intervention was quite effective for women experiencing postpartum depression. Since then, um, a number of investigators have taken those principles and uh, developed interventions based on IPT that could be delivered during pregnancy to high-risk women. And, and those um, interventions on balance have been pretty successful um, compared to, you know, appropriate control groups. So that's, there are others, but that would be a good example. A, another example uh, are interventions based on what was originally a British model of delivering um, counseling by health visitors to women often in their homes who were uh, identified as having a postnatal depression. And a number of studies validated that sort of an intervention for women with mild to moderate levels of depression. Uh, this approach has also been um, adapted, uh, not to the same extent, but to some degree for postnatal depression or as a, a, a preventive intervention by uh, intervening either late in pregnancy or early in the postpartum period. The advantage there is that typically these interventions are delivered by non-mental health professionals um, and to some degree are well integrated into the health system and can be delivered relatively economically. Interventions based on established uh, treatments like interpersonal psychotherapy are often delivered by professionals and as a consequence are a, a somewhat more expensive and um, perhaps are more difficult to make widely available. So those are probably the, the two best examples. Uh, the other general class, and there's really not much to say about them, is um, the uh, opportunities afforded by online interventions or interventions that can be delivered through the smartphone. Um, and so we're that's where we're headed right now is to develop a preventive intervention that women can access either uh, on a computer at home or on a, a tablet or uh, on their smartphone. Yeah, there's certainly incredible potential in the new ways to deliver information and support to um, the community generally. Um, why do you think the interventions that were delivered by the non-professional or lay providers were also effective? there are um, important what we call common factors in any psychotherapy. And, and these would include things like having a, a close, uh, uh, engaged relationship with a, a, a client, uh, providing some uh, structure to the therapy situation. These would include having a number of positive oh, I would just maybe, for lack of a better word, call them personality characteristics that allow people to establish close personal relationships. 
And so uh, these characteristics aren't limited to professional therapists. And um, we know that individuals who consistently exhibit these characteristics in the context of a helping relationship can can be extremely helpful. So there's a number of things that lay people or non-mental health health professionals can do, um, particularly if they're trained, um, and it doesn't have to be extensive training to actually improve outcomes for women who are uh, either uh, mildly depressed or, you know, who, who are carrying risk factors for depression. So it's uh, becoming increasingly recognized that what's probably important is that mental health professionals are very active in developing these interventions and supervising these interventions, but in many cases, they can be delivered extremely effectively by individuals who don't have formal long-term mental health training. So um, that's one set of reasons. The other set is that the individuals who deliver these interventions often have high credibility to the women who are receiving them. So uh, in the case of, let's say, a health visitor or any other kind of a person who is uh, with whom the woman is familiar during pregnancy or after delivery, there's often already a bond of trust. Uh, there's already a relationship that's been built. Uh, the provider of the intervention knows probably quite a bit about the woman and her circumstances, and it allows her to uh, deal rather directly and effectively. So there's l lots of reasons why we think these individuals can deliver effective interventions. And of course, this is very important in a time where there's real constraints on on, on health budgets. And uh, I, I think this is a very important direction to go for the future. And um, one of the things that you mentioned was the um, importance of identifying women who are at risk and the issue of um, costs associated with programs for all women as opposed to programs for women at risk. Can you tell us a little about the current challenges faced by clinicians in trying to identify women who are most at risk? Yeah, well, this is a very, uh, this is a difficult problem and it extends beyond postnatal depression and that is how well can we screen an individual and then deliver an intervention uh, based on that um, Screening. So, for example, uh, just to maybe broaden it, and then I'll bring it back. Uh, you know, there's debates about the um, the usefulness, for example, of mammography these days, or other kinds of of screening for uh, of cancer susceptibility, and so on. And part of it is that there's always a cost associated with incorrect screening, and, and so one of the costs. Of, associated with incorrect screening or poor screening of, of perinatal depression is that women may be identified as uh, needing an intervention when they really don't, and that can create a lot of anxiety and costs for the woman. On the other hand, she may be missed, which is also a problem. And the reason that these are real problems is because our screening tools are um, only modestly useful to identify women who are likely to go on to have a, uh, a postpartum uh, or a postpartum or a postnatal depression. So it's been very difficult to improve the accuracy of these screening tools. A, a, a very common tool to look at 
to identify women who might be at risk for depression is uh, using the Edinburgh postnatal depression scale, for example, to look at, you know, the beginning of a depression where you might want to intervene or to identify a group of risk factors that such as low income, maybe history of depression, family history, past sexual abuse. Certainly all of these groups will have a higher likelihood of becoming depressed, but many of them um, won't won't actually go on to have a depression. So I think an important direction to go is to you know, work hard to improve the the accuracy of our uh, of our screening, and um, I think we've got a long way to go there. When you talk about the um, need to improve our screening tools, would you say that is the area for future research? So, what sort of future research do we really need to do in this area? That would be on the side of assessment: is to develop better tools that. Uh, give us better prediction, um, and that would help tremendously because then we could identify the women who really need help, and we won't be bothering the women to some degree who don't require our assistance. So th- that would be, to me, on the one side. On the other side where of intervention is um, I would say we're still in the midst of, of really trying to develop good preventive interventions, and um, just generally, I think we need much more work in that area. Um, as I said, the, you know, where we, we have some enthusiasm right now is to develop interventions that can be delivered personally right to the women through their smartphones, through their tablets, through their computers uh, at a time and a place of their choosing. We know that uh, during pregnancy and certainly early after delivery, women are extremely busy in their lives, and it's not always possible for them to schedule a, a visit to a health care or mental health care professional. So, and many women in the United States, this is a big country, live in areas, rural areas, where uh, distances really become uh, prohibitive, in that uh, where mental health professionals are more scattered about. Uh, than they would be in dense uh, urban areas. So I think things that we can do to make um, interventions more accessible to these women and more acceptable. I mean, a lot of women still, even though the stigma is less now, um, there's still a general reluctance um, on average to seek services of very high proportions of women who need preventive or uh, actual interventions services are not seeking them out. And so um, even the interventions that we have established aren't always being deployed to take care of the women who need the help. So this would be another area is to more fully integrate uh, these depression prevention and depression intervention um, programs into the general healthcare system, particularly here in the United States, where it's a much more uh, heterogeneous system um, and where these kinds of things almost have to happen, um, you know, uh, state by state as opposed to across the country. So one final message to our listeners, you know, what can we take from this research? What's really important is that these uh, perinatal depression, postnatal depression can be prevented or at least mitigated and that any efforts along these lines are uh, extremely important to the welfare of the, the mother and the child and the family as a, 
a whole. And I think we, um, as a society, we want to do everything possible to get the uh, best possible start for uh, our children and make it possible for women to be the best mothers that they can be. Well, thank you so much. We've been talking with Professor Michael O'Hara from the University of Iowa in the USA, and it sounds like there's some really exciting research going on at the moment, and we look forward to hearing some more in the future. Thank you so much. You're welcome.